Yahoo announced a security breach affecting upwards of 1 billion user accounts. Cyber attack leaves 145 million eBay users at risk. Target announced up to 110 million customers may have had their identity and financial information compromised. Cyber security breach at Equifax could affect 143 million American consumers. And now your host, Nexus IT Group. Welcome back to another episode of Hacked into the Minds of Cybersecurity Leaders, brought to you by Nexus IT Security Group. This is your host, Ben Hotailing. This is a two-part episode. We are lucky enough to have a top 50 most influential chief technology officer and social cybersecurity leader, Will LaSalle. Welcome, Will. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. Great to be here. Excited to have you. Uh, today, we are going to discuss how Will has utilized social media to build his personal brand and become a well-recognized executive technology leader. We're also going to chat a little bit about the threat landscape and keeping your information and assets secure during transformations and modernizations. Will has an awesome story about how he got into cybersecurity. Will, take it away. Tell us how you've made your name in the space. Thanks, Ben. I started my career loving IT. I was looking into becoming a doctor. My, my parents wanted me to become a surgeon. I was doing great in school, et cetera, until my father bought me my first computer, which was a Sandy, the late 80s, early 90s, right? From one of those Radio Shack specials, probably when I was 12, 13 years old. And um, I fell in love with computers, man. And, and back then, it was a lot of tinkering, um, a lot of hacking, hardware hacking, software, just being how it worked, right? Getting my first, into my first foray on back then into 2400 baud modems and AOL and got all that stuff out of my system real, real young, right? Kind of using accounts, right? Through hacked credit cards and things of that nature and, and being able to, to learn. And it was just, it was the curiosity that, that kills the cat. It was the curiosity and, and learning and tinkering with all this stuff. And I just fell in love with computers. So I would just come home, knock out my homework, and work on computers. And soon I realized, hey, you know, I love computers. I want to get a job having to do something in computers. Through my high school years, you know, that was very formative. And I did a lot of stuff like that in in high school and in the computer lab, a lot of tinkering, a lot of computer repair, and more learning and learning on my own how things work. You know, got in trouble for being able to do things and hacking things in school, almost got expelled. Sitting there, it gave me the mindset of what do I want to do? when I grew up now, right? And my idea back then in the mid-90s was, hey, I want to work for the FBI and I want to do computer investigations for the FBI. I want to catch the bad guys. My mentality was it takes one to know one, right? I don't want to go to jail. I'm going to turn 18 soon after graduation. I don't want to go to jail and I want to just learn. My birthday falls a little bit past graduation. And I ended up getting a, and this is a, a pretty cool story too. I ended up getting a lot of offers for college. I got accepted to basically every university I applied for at the time. But I got one manila envelope, just a plain manila envelope with a white label on it with my name. And I opened up this envelope and it was from the Central Intelligence Agency. And what the envelope said is basically, they would pay for my school completely. But for every year, because they knew I was going to study computer engineering and I had gotten accepted into Penn State, Syracuse, and I was going to attend Penn State at the time for computer engineering and their five-year program. So for every year that I would go to school, 
they would pay for it 100%, but I would have to work for them for two years. And at the time, my, my girlfriend at the time was going to be getting pregnant. Her stepfather, actually, was former military, you know, was, was an officer. When I explained it to him, he said, hey, you don't, you don't want to work for the CIA. I was like, why? He said, they kill their own. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm freaking out and stuff like that. So I said, you know, I never, I never returned, returned the letter. But it's obvious something where they know about you, heard about you, and they know you're however they know, right? They know your my dreams and aspirations and my talents and my skill set. But as I said earlier, you know, life kind of happened. I got my girlfriend at the time pregnant. I had a kid. So I had to go work full time and kind of put off school for a little bit. When I did end up going back to school, it was something where I went back to school and I did my, my degree in information technology, specialization information security. Again, this was in the early 2000s. And it was just something because it was a passion, but it was always something that I saw as it's going to be very impactful, right? There's going to be cyber warfare. You know, computers are more and more, they're just proliferating and they're just integrating into everything, right? Fast forward to today where one of the biggest cliches that I say is, you know, I believe every company is an IT company. They just, I was the CIO, CISO at Sino up in Wisconsin, and I said, you know, we're an IT company that happens to own and run a casino, um, a health center, a gas station, and government operations. And, and a lot of that stuff just stems from that belief that I had early on, where I knew that, that things would get to the point that they're getting to now. So I just worked. I took on every project. Um, anytime there was a new compliance that came out, whether it was in, in the early 2000s working on HIPAA, whether it was SOX compliance when that came about, PCI later on, constantly working on this stuff and, and keeping it to myself, right? That, that the main thing is it takes one to know one was, was my and, and has been my approach to things, right? Put yourself in that mindset. It's funny, right? Because it's like the show Dexter. He's a, a blood pathologist. He recreates, you know, murder scenes, and it's, he happens to be a serial killer himself, right? So it gives him that kind of perspective to be able to put himself in that mindset. And that's kind of what, what's helped me in my career. But again, it's something where I've always been doing security, always been IT. It's been a passion, and I just happen to work in it. Later on in my career, it was something of, okay, how do I become the man in IT? How do I get to that C-level? I have the talent. I have the skills. I have you know, an MBA, a master's certificate, how do I get there? And it, I really took it upon jumping on social media early. I've been on Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, Google Plus, all these in their infancy, Facebook and even social platforms before that. And I knew that those would take off. Not that I'm a genius. Many people knew that those would take off. But it was something where, okay, how, how can I capitalize this and brand myself on this? At the time, I just brainstormed with a good buddy of mine. And he, he thought about branding in terms of, I'm um, originally from New York, New Jersey. There's a show about a baker called Cake Boss that's out in Hoboken, Carlos Bakery. And he had another show, a subsequent show called Next Great Baker. So I just came up with the concept Next Great CIO. And at the time when I came up with this concept, really CISOs for the most part reported into CIOs, right? So the path of progression was you can be a CISO or a CTO, and for the most part, those positions report into a CIO. So the CIO is kind of the, the, the king in terms of information technology. So that's why I was aspiring more so. Nowadays, you really see CISOs, and you, and you got some people talking about CIOs eventually reporting into CISOs. Kind of the same ilk you had Gartner years ago saying, 
CIOs would be eventually reporting to CMOs. So it, it kind of took me to the approach of, all right, creating this brand and creating a hashtag, next great CIO. You get a lot of people that have a mentality, an older mentality of dress for the job you want, dress for success, right? Don't dress for the job you have, dress for the job you want. So my mentality was like, hey, you know what? It's, it's a new age. Things are progressing. You know, Apple here, uh, the iPhone X or 10 is coming out for the 10 year anniversary. You hear the stories of Steve Jobs and those guys when they went to AT&T and and AT&T was all dressed in suits, and those guys were dressed in probably Steve Jobs at the time were wearing his trademark jeans and, and a turtleneck, right? And it just got to a point of, hey, I'm going to do things differently, right? So I'm going to write, I'm a blog, I'm a micro blog for the job I want, right? I'm going to go out there and I'm going to jump into conversations like hashtag CIO chat or cloud chat and express my opinion, right? Express from my expertise and my my credentials and, and stuff like that, what, what my belief is, my education and things of that nature, just kind of express and, and speak to people and, and interact with other CIOs and, and stuff like that. Because in my mind, I was. My mentality was like the old music mentality too. I, I really grew up on, on hip hop. Please listen to my demo, right? With me, it was like, hey, hear me. This is me. Give me a chance. Somebody out there is going to see, recognize the, the skills and give me a chance. And it was really... Uh, instrumental man in, in my career it helped with the branding it helped with getting my name out there it helped with people being able to respect me inviting me over to the big boys table so to speak getting invited into organizations such as stem where i'm a member of the board of directors down here in south florida being a member of the hispanic it executive council the international consortium for minority Cybersecurity professionals and just really association of IT professionals, and then just sharing the story, right? Sharing my story, sharing my knowledge. It's really gotten me to the point of getting that recognition. And then again, like you mentioned at the top of the hour, being one of the top 20 social CIOs, being a top influential cybersecurity executive, chief information technology officer globally. And again, it's great to get the recognition, but it comes through years and years and years of hard work, perseverance, and just really going out there and, and marketing myself and branding myself and letting people know about my expertise yeah that's it in a nutshell uh, that's such a unique path how did sure. you gain such good knowledge useful knowledge that you felt comfortable you know blogging oh. and, and sitting at the the big table you know, what what was it that you did on the the back end to you know, make sure you could cash those checks if that makes sense <laughs> yeah one of the things i wish i could do right if you could go back I learned to speed read after I had already finished my MBA and my master's certificate in executive leadership. And I wish I had learned sooner. But one of the things is I, I took a speed reading course just to be able to, like the 80s movie short circuit, I need more input. I constantly read. So to answer your question, I constantly read. I constantly learn. I read articles. I interact with peers. I attend conferences. I speak. I tinker. I still sit there and mess around with things and, and keep my technical skills sharp by, by tinkering. And, and I'm a big proponent of STEM. I have my two younger sons, my one that turned eight yesterday, my other turns 10 next month. They're both into STEM and both into development. It's just lifelong learning, Ben, and it's a passion for me. So it's just constant, constant, constant learning. And it's going back to that 80s movie short circuit, it's I need more input. I need more input. I have to interact. I have to. Even when I drive, I purposely purchased a car that had CarPlay built in 
So I can listen to my audiobooks and podcasts and constantly learn. So that's that just feeding that, that thirst for knowledge. And that's helped me in my career because at that point, it's something like, okay, wow, he, he knows so much. The other thing is I remember weird things. I, I have trouble remembering, you know, my anniversary and things of that nature with my wife, but um, she chews me out about it. I remember so much useless facts. My wife tells me all the time I should go on Jeopardy or something like that because I'll remember things that are just obscure. But having that memory has helped me because I can sit there. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? This is your troubleshooting technique. This is this. Or, hey, you know, five years ago, we had a similar incident and we tried this or this is what it was. And that's kind of what, what kept me um, abreast of new new stuff, new technologies, new incidents and, and risks that present themselves in the ever-changing landscape. Just a passion for technology overall and a thirst for knowledge. Sure. Sounds like this is what you'd be doing regardless of if it paid the bills or not. Oh, definitely. My other love is music. And if I could combine those two loves, I'd be, uh, I'd be in heaven, right? That'd be, if I can work in, in information technology, cybersecurity, and mu- music. So Sony, if you're listening, um, <laughs> Sony Music <laughs> or something like that, BMV, you know, something like that, that that'd be just awesome. Great that you you have found that passion. Now, I know you've been doing consulting for, for quite a while now. Is that correct? I formed an organization with my partner and, and my wife, JLS Technology. Um, and we've been doing a lot of consulting. Some of the, some of the clients, you know, we can reveal, but some that we do things in, in, in confidentiality, kind of post-mortem stuff and trying to do any security forensic items. But yeah, we've been doing that for 10 years and, and we offer in, in the cybersecurity space strategy and project management space, but, but mostly in the security space. So, and we just got recognized as one of the top um, MSSPs as well. So that's a, that's a great accomplishment that we, we received in the past two weeks. It allows me to work for more than one organization. It allows me to do that and, and be able to help. And I look at it as I'm, I'm helping multiple people. So going back to that passion early on that I had where I intended to help people by being a surgeon, and that was my, my dream early on, it's something where in my mindset, it's I'm helping organizations, I'm securing critical infrastructure, and I'm protecting them from, you know, not necessarily the bad guys, but just from unfortunate events, protecting them and improving their, their risk posture. Is Vinny Vidi Vici, right? I love doing stuff like that, but I don't want to see it in maintenance mode. I want to be able to go in, kick butt, and then move on to the next exciting project, or otherwise I get bored. So it's allowed me for the ten, last 10 years to, to be able to do that. When is it the right time for an organization to outsource a security program? And when is it not the right, the right option? Great question. Wow. There's a skill shortage in terms of cybersecurity. Huge. You know, huge, there's numbers, and, and I think it's even more increasing. We're playing catch-up, and it's something that you can outsource the function, right, to organizations like JLS Technology that are MSSP, but you can't offshore it, right? And, and IT has really been in an offshore kind of model for a long time with development, infrastructure, you know, infrastructure maintenance, right, like system administrators, engineer, DBA, and stuff like that. You really can't offshore security, right? And at the same time, you really don't want the same person that's your VAR or doing your, your implementation to keep tabs on themselves. To me, if you can't afford 
and it's kind of the selling point of an organization like a JLS Tech or most MSSPs, right? They're staffed with some really good, knowledgeable people that this is their passion for the most part. It's their life, their learning, and they're able to to take the knowledge that they learn on all these projects and contracts and customers that they have and regurgitate it for the next one, right? Reuse it and people benefit from that, right? So there's always a good time. The the, the problem is for, for companies to do it. The problem is right now it's supply versus demand, right? So talent within cybersecurity, point blank, you know, Coke price is going up. So supply, demand, and you've got cybersecurity professionals and what i've encountered is a lot of organizations that just aren't ready because they don't understand from a cost perspective that the true cybersecurity professionals have the options to turn down customers right and there's just not enough people even though you have programs you have initiatives new york city federal government they're really investing money they're they're trying they're putting grants together universities are trying to play catch up i mean there's some universities down here that have some amazing cybersecurity programs and some amazing students in there, like Nova Southeastern University and St. Thomas University down here, which good friends with the deans of those, those departments. And we partner with those departments to have that pipeline of students. But there's competition for those pipeline and everything like that. So what I'm getting at is, you know, you can be an organization, but they just don't have the budget for security. And even when they sit there and they say, okay, we know we need this, right? We're we're out there, we're listening to the news, we're, we're hearing everything that's out there with all these hacks and breaches and incidents, you name it, Equifax, blaming the Russians for the election, et cetera, et cetera. It, it ends up putting a perspective. It's still, it, it's got to make sense. And they put aside some money and they think they can go out there and get someone with a CISSP, with a CISM, CISA, Security Plus, 10 years experience and put out a number. And it's like, Dude, someone with all those skills, they can write their own check. So at that point, I think those organizations really need to look at getting into an MSSP, outsourcing their program, because the talent is just not there to satisfy the demand. So those are the instances that I would see. And I think that they're ready when they understand that. And when they talk to someone like me that communicates it to them in plain English, and again, and tells them, hey, you know, call me when you're ready. Right. I don't want to take your money just to take your money. Right. But cybersecurity professionals are not a dime a dozen. Right. They're scarce right now. And if you need to really secure your critical infrastructure, then they really need to take it. The other the other part to it is, you know, like I was saying earlier, as far as CISOs traditionally have reported into CIOs in places I've been at where I've played the CIO role and also have worn the CISO hat, you know, I tell people, hey, I'm going to build it up because I know how to do this. I know how to build it up. But eventually, you're going to have to have the CISO and that security group report into the board of directors or report into the CEO, GM, whatever, as opposed to reporting to the CIO, just because you need that checks and balances. And as security proliferates and IT, just you got more nodes, you got more events than, than a team can even handle it's really going to get to the point where you, you need those checks and balances and you need security to, to end up making sure that things that are on the CIO's agenda also pass the sniff test and, and reduce risk to the organization. We've identified this talent gap years yeah. ago, and it is funny that it, it, well, I guess it's not funny, but it's unfortunate that it hasn't come to a, any sort of resolution yet. But hearing you talk, is our issue more the leadership side that we're lacking in talent or the worker bees? 
or is it, you know, somewhere in between? Is it the CISO that we need to be able to identify to have an effective internal security program that can give the individuals working in that program you know, the, the right tools and opportunity to be successful in that program? Or is it we don't have enough people that are capable of keeping the security program afloat? Wow. I think it's a little bit of all of the above. I mean, there's just when, shortage when, everywhere. There's a shortage everywhere, but also I did my, my bachelor's and I did my MBA and I did a master's certificate and I, I totally intend on going back and doing a PhD, but I, I graduated almost 10 years ago with my MBA and I went as an alumni and I was talking to some of my professors and I still out of respect call them, you know, Dr. Boyle, Dr. Schmidt, Dr. Mohammedy. And, and I speak to them, but they, they consider me peer, right? Because just on that intellectual level, and they know that, that I have the capability and they wanted me to go into my PhD program and get it. But I told them, no, I want 10 years of seasoning in between, right? I want, I want that seasoning in between, right? And, and what I'm getting at is, you know, in those conversations that I had with them, um, and, and one of them was the dean of the IT department, and he's bounced around at that time frame, he's bounced around from university to university because the universities have taken this approach of there's not that much enrollment, right? There wasn't that much enrollment in IT. And because of that, they killed the, they killed the programs at the time, right? So there wasn't much enrollment at the time in security. So now it's hot. Now we're playing catch up, right? But again, it goes to who's out there capable of, of teaching. So when you, when you want to create a pipeline of students, who's out there capable of teaching? Who's out there that, that has the passion to sit there and, and has the, the academic background? So those are very few. I mean, I know a bunch of people like that, that are in that. But again, you know, now you're talking about, you're going to get this influx of students, you're going to get this influx of people, not enough teachers to really be able to teach them, and then keeping abreast because it's become even more of a cat and mouse game because it's profitable, right? We hear about everything we hear about in the news, but we don't know what we don't hear about, right? The stuff, and even a lot of the breaches we hear about, it's, it happened years ago, right? Like the Yahoo breach. How many companies right now are, have been breached and they just haven't divulged it because the company might go belly up, right? Some of these companies you don't know about, but have your personal information, right? And have been compromised. So it, it ends up creating the situation where you get people and then you have all these regulations that pass that say you must have a CISO equivalent person. Well, that's kind of vague, right? You get somebody that, okay, they're calling themselves a CISO because they have three, four, five years experience, but what does that entail, right? Are they really the real good? Um, and I think that's led to a lot of this where some people have been put in a, in a position where they really weren't qualified for it, right? We recently had the Equifax breach and really were the, the CIO and the CISO, you know, were they qualified to, to be in those roles? We can say hindsight is 2020. We can all be Monday morning, Tuesday morning quarterbacks. But when you break it down, it's like, okay, what's the future generation is going to look like? And I just think people are doing things. There's a lot of committees. There's a lot of government, you know, regulations that are passing that are creating these opportunities. Um, and my advice always to, to some of the younger generation and the people that I mentor is really get into cybersecurity, learn the stuff, put yourself in that mindset, tinker, tinker, tinker. Don't just be a, a theory person and somebody that passes the class and then erases all that um, knowledge out of your head. The whole journey 
in learning is to continue and continuously, because this is a cat and mouse game. You got threats in foreign countries where some of their economy is driven off of cyber crimes and espionage, right? And you've got threats where they're making money off of this ransomware. So it's really tough to, to combat that. And it's a challenge that we have. But again, there's a lot of talented people as, as talented and more talented than me that call it upon themselves to, to have this mission and stretch themselves out thin and, and help out the masses. And, and that's kind of the analogy I look, right? There's a shortage in medical professionals, right? And it's hot right, right now, too, because people are living longer and there's more people, et cetera. So kind of the same approach where there's a shortage in cybersecurity, but we're acknowledging it, we're, we're putting things in place. And eventually, I think that y- the youth and those people that are getting not just young in age, but the people young in terms of their cybersecurity careers are getting in, they're learning from reputable schools and organizations and people and mentors. And that's the next generation that's going to help us. Right now, it's, it's slim. Yeah. Okay. Now, in your you know, consulting experience, organizations are going through some sort of you know, digital transformation, let's say, a modernization effort and bringing yep. in some more cutting edge technologies. What are some potential security challenges or vulnerabilities that can pop up you know, in the midst of going through a uh, you know, enterprise level transformation, like a, a digital transformation? That's a great question, too. You know, I'm a member of the Institute on Digital Transformation and you know, have done a lot of work around, around the digital transformation space. One of the things I can say with, with respect to, to just digital transformation and tech, those technologies is it wants to be at the at speed. You have people now that they want things fast. They want to be able to prototype quickly. They want release after release, you know, updates, things of that nature. You want technology, Internet of Things. So you got tons of endpoints now. And it's what I kind of like what I said earlier, right? Now you got all these endpoints that you have to monitor. I forget what the number is now, but it's just growing. Everyone has two or three connected devices. And, and that's just getting more. You, you got people with cars that are connected. You got smart everything. You got people with heart rate monitors or, you know, medical equipment that's inside of people, right? Like ICDs, right? Implantable cardio defibrillators that are controlled. And I, I believe that they, they were hacked, right? And there was something like that. Now all these people got to get stuff inside of them um, upgraded, right? The software or, or whatever. It's just mind-boggling to think that we're getting there. It's exciting, but it's also like to get your hands around it. The approach has to be an integrated approach where security is part of the culture. It's part of not only employee awareness, but it's just part of everything that gets developed. I got a good buddy, Mike Kale, that is working on on a company that really has a, a security software that that does that, right? That integrates with development that has where People are implementing technology and developing quick, and they're able to test and test for security and and vulnerabilities as quick. I really see that as the need, right? I see that as the future. I see that you you have to take into account and and roll out these kind of technologies and transform organizations where their traditional business model they're moving onto the internet, they're moving onto digital platforms, mobile, they're, they're creating products that are connected to the internet, internet of things 24 by seven, that they keep into account security and securing that, that infrastructure. Yet, like I said, have the debate on 
cars, right, on smart cars, on are they going to choose, if they get put into a situation, what's the algorithm? Are they going to choose the driver life or a pedestrian, right? But the thing about it is, is, okay, what if somebody, you know, hacks that and bypasses that, right, takes control of it? So you really have to not only think about the, the algorithms, but you have to think about and building this from that kind of a security perspective. It presents challenges. But again, with me, it's weird. I look at it as exciting and opportunities and, you know, <laughs> just another space to sit there and do research and help organizations um, with that uh, security posture. So, you know, from your experience in doing these transformations, there hasn't been like one specific vulnerability that would pop up when implementing, say, you know, internet connected devices in a manufacturing facility or you know, anything that, that's really predominant as a uh, massive vulnerability. You know, I guess it depends on the what type of transformation, what technology is being implemented, but was just curious if you saw any trends or you know, something that, that most individuals should be on the lookout for during those, uh, those transformations. Just a quick example, right? I worked at an organization that was developing a product. And in the development of this product, you know, security was just an afterthought. They weren't looking at it. So I always kind of had to bring the conversation back into the security mindset, right? There's data, there's personal health information that's traversing this device that's connected to the internet, right? That's handheld and mobile that someone can leave with, right? So, okay. We have to encrypt the device, right? And that's low-hanging fruit. We have to encrypt the data in transit, right? Um, We have to abide by, but we also have to think beyond that. We have to think of building security and constantly, but also further updates, right? How how are we going to be able to have this node call home and realize that no longer on the internet or it's been compromised or it's been jailbroken or rooted or or what have you. And people are now going to, because of that, because of a vulnerability, because we decided on using this as part of the underlying platform, and that is not supported anymore. What are we going to do to still be able to support and update that device while our shelf life on that device is going to be three years, right? Because from an economic standpoint, it doesn't make sense to update it and, and throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? It doesn't make sense that, okay, we chose this device, it has Android 5.0, and then two years from now, nobody supports Android 5.0. Somebody finds a zero-day exploit, and people take the approach of, oh, well, I upgraded my tablet or my Galaxy or my Android device. I'm not, I don't have to worry about it, right? But now we have 10,000 devices out there, right, that are vulnerable to this. And, and how do we put mechanism in place where we still be a viable business, right? We, and, and we're not sitting here doing a massive recall because we didn't have the forward security looking mentality. And, and that's what I experienced. And, it, and it's something where it's in its infancy, Ben, right? So these are things where you have to experience it and go through it when you're working hand in hand with a product development team and kind of come with that focus and, and play that. because. Again, the cat and mouse game, and it takes one to no one. Me personally, I would just sit there and wait, wait till it bleeds out. So, mm-hmm. and that's what I would do. And I would sit there and I would have a zero day exploit, right? That I would sit there and sit on, like years ago with, with the whole XP stuff. I'd sit on it and I'd sit there and say, okay, I'm just going to wait it out and strike and be an opportunist and strike when the 
you know, when the opportunity presents itself. So that that's kind of what I've seen and, and kind of giving you an example. Yeah, no, that's a great example. So one thing you mentioned is the security mindset. We talked about that quite a bit in our last podcast with Michael Starks. Do you think the security mindset can be learned or is it you know, just uh, the nature of a, a person? No, I, I definitely think it can be learned. I think it's something where it, it can be learned and someone can be real, real, real good, right? And they can just sit here and say, listen, I do, I do this nine to five. It's not my passion. It's not my my life. I don't let it consume me, but I'm, they're still really, 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 really good. At the same time, I think, you know, the creme de la creme, you know, the, the real superstars in the industry are the ones that kind of eat, sleep, breathe it, and, and have that security mindset in everything they do, right? And they, they share the knowledge, they go out there in their free time, they go to conferences, they mentor, they're an adjunct professor to kind of give that knowledge, right? Like the story and the example I just gave, product development and developing something that's cutting edge and going to do big numbers and disrupt disrupt an industry, right? But then again, it's, you know, they're looking at it, but they're not thinking that. They're not thinking security down the line. It's, it's their thinking right now. And a lot of people have that mentality, unfortunately. So having the security mindset is being able to come in and say, hey, but did you guys think about this? Or what about that? Or being able to bring a story, bring an analogy, bring a prior experience, bring it up, and, and then the person and stimulate the thought within those people that weren't thinking it, right? And I think that's coming with that security mindset. And I think that's where the value of security professionals and right now bring overall into organizations, right? Just being able to have that security mindset, again, that they can learn, right? It's embracing it. I just think personally, it needs to be a, at least a commitment to lifelong learning and keeping up with the Joneses and keeping up with the bad guys. Sure. So it sounds just like athletics, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods. Not only were they yeah. naturally gifted with the ability to be exceptional at their craft, they also lived it, breathed it, was their life for, uh, you know, for their careers. Well, that's a great, you know, and I'm a big Michael Jordan fan, right? So he had that clause in his contract early on, the one where he could play basketball anywhere at any time against anybody, and it wouldn't violate his contract. I forget what it was called, but that's exactly it. He had that, and he played that, and it's still his passion. And even when his body would not allow him to perform at the level that it would, he still sat there and said, I'm going to be an owner, right? I'm going to own a team. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be a GM. I'm going to do that and still be involved. And I think that's the mentality and the approach you have to take. And, and that's the approach I take. So having that, that passion around it. But again, I think it's something that could be learned, right? Because a lot of, you know, in the analogy, we talk about Michael Jordan. It's some, hey, man, you know, he's great. At the same time, he's also 6'6". Six, six. You know what I'm trying to say? I think that needs to so. There are some some God-given abilities there, but again, you know, you look at you look at it. There's still a potential there. You look at somebody like Isaiah Thomas, who now plays for the Cavaliers, and he's like five eight, five nine, and still dropping thirty points in the NBA, which is uh, amazing. And just work hard and hustle. So that's the thing with uh, security as well, right? Just work hard, have that lifelong learning mentality, have that mindset, and, and you can go far and and help. Again, I look like we are helping people. We're improving security um, and helping organizations and preventing these cyber crimes from happening. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Now it's just the uh, the challenge of you finding those individuals with that security mindset that do want to you know put in the work to to be successful in an enterprise or you know within their own security practices. I think that's yep. uh, that's what we got to do to close that gap. Yep. Yep. Okay. Great. Well, in part two, we're going to talk quite a bit more about uh, the modern threat landscape, some breaches specifically around bad rabbit. Definitely excited to chat with you about that on part two. Let's get into overrated, underrated. We got to do this. uh, Regardless, we'll do this for both. So first one, watering hole attacks. Is that overrated or underrated? Underrated. Underrated. Next one. This is my, my favorite one. End user training. Overrated or underrated? Um, wow. I, I, I have to say underrated. I know some people will say overrated. I have to say underrated. I really think that security awareness and user awareness, you got to beat it over people's heads to stop clicking here, allowing phishing attempts and stuff like that. And, and really, you know, integrate security into everything. And I've been in organizations where they have great programs and it has helped, right. And they enforce them. Um, and then I've been at places where it's just an afterthought. They do it once a year and it, and they've been vulnerable to attack. So I say um, still right now, it's still underrated. Sure. Okay. Last one. And then we'll let you go until uh, second part here. The new NIST guidelines for passwords, overrated or underrated? Oh, <laughs> um, that one, I will, I'm going to say overrated. I'm trying to sidestep an explanation. I'm just going to say overrated just because I don't <laughs> want to get into into trouble because I'm I'm working on uh, some initiatives right now that are based off of uh, NIST and critical infrastructure. So I'll say uh, overrated. And in my personal opinion, there's a lot of things with respect to password policies that have, uh, this goes back to end user training. You can implement these password policies and it's got to be this, it's got to have that and this many characters and this many special characters. But again, and I'm even guilty of this too, right? Years ago, before two-factor authentication, and so I'm a firm believer in and multi-factor authentication, I would sit there and just, uh, I would change my password and change it back and or just add another number and incremental number and, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And I just think that, People will remember that, right? And at the same time, if they turn around and write it, whatever, if they follow whatever the policy is, but turn around and write it on a sticky note and stick it and throw it into a garbage and somebody goes dump through diving later, they still have that password no matter how, no matter the policy that you put in place. So again, there's more to it than that. So I'll just say, great, it's all helpful, but still overrated, there's more to it than that. Sure. I think that's fair. I definitely agree with you. Well, great. Stick around for part two. More to come. We're going to talk about breaches and bad rabbit. Excited to, to chat with you about that. Awesome. We want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast brought to you by Nexus IT Group. If you're looking for a new career challenge, let's chat. If you're looking to hire new talent, reach out. Or if you just want to talk about cybersecurity, email us at info at nexusitgroup.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay secure.